All right. So the name of the podcast is Application to Admission. I want it to be HBC versus PWIs, but you know, you think that's a little bit too too aggressive. And I, you know, I don't want to be aggressive. I want to make sure that I I treat your your your, your brother, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. right. You know, I don't come off too too militant. Even though Martin was a real militant man, he has some he has some really positive stances on a lot of things that people you know, have diluted his message through this holiday and all that, but that's a whole nother uh, episode. It is that time, folks. The Application to Admission podcast is here. We are back in full effect. We are in the, the thick of the fall, almost Thanksgiving. I can't lie. Now that it's past November 1, I am breathing a little bit better. How are you, my co-author, uh, uh, application reading, early decision uh, cohort, Mr. Timothy Fields, how are you doing now that I'm celebrating November one being here? Oh man, I'm I'm about to get into it. We got Quest Bridge, we got Early Decision One, and then I'm just gonna blink and it's gonna be March uh, because I'm about to be all in these applications uh, that we've been recruiting. But you know, hey, I'm happy to be employed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's, it, it, it's it's great work uh, that uh, I get to take part in at a wonderful institution. So. All in all, man, I don't have any complaints. I have any complaints. Congratulations on making it to uh, this date. Are you feeling good about? It? You feeling good? Everybody's gonna, everybody's gonna get in. Everybody's uh, gonna get in. Well, you and I will talk about that separately. <laughs> no, uh, no, no. I, I, early decision is a big uh, time for me and my company. Obviously, you know, a lot of our students apply early decision, early action. So, yeah, there's a push in September and October. I'm definitely feeling better about the momentum that we had going into this date and. As January 1st quickly approaches, uh, still more kids do, doing the essay course. Um, a lot of students who are now kind of scrambling, who weren't as proactive as they may have been or should have been over the summer. So happy to help who needs it. But yes, I think the the dynamic that you and I have with my application season being on the, the front end of your admission season gives us you know different uh, uh, vacation times per se, but we always catch up. And if you're new to the application admission podcast, Please share, subscribe, do what you got to do to help out the next person who needs it. Because a lot of students need help. A lot of educators need help. And parents, I've been where you're at with teenagers. Uh, you need help too. So check out the Application to Admission podcast. Um, share it with all the people, good people you know. And Tim, I'm excited today because we have a different kind of guest. <clears throat> Normally we have these, you know, college admissions professionals <clears throat> or people who are going to talk about all these uh, complex ideas. But today we got a, a good old fashioned parent who's about to go through the process and, and we're going to make sure he's on the right track. So why don't you do the introductions and we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, definitely always excited to be on here with you. Um, but, you know, you like me I, a little bit, Tim, Tim, you like me a little bit. Uh, hey, man, you're a great guy. You I, are. I, I a, believe a great, that, too. Hey, man, you're a great guy. You know, you're doing some big things. Thanks for, you know, you know, dragging me along this process. Uh, but today, uh, you know, we got somebody special, you know. Regular old parent is a little understatement, you know. I, that was he, intentional. He, that was yeah, intentional. Yeah, 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 yeah. He 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 is a parent, but he's a lot of other things. Um, Doctor Greg Ellison, where where can I begin? Um, you know, one he is, you know, a native of Atlanta. Hopefully, we get into some of that. You know, he's old Atlanta. They not call him old, but you know, he is part of the history of Atlanta and his family. Um, he is, uh, you know, went to Emory University. Uh, he, you know, then went on to Princeton Seminary School. He is an author. He is a scholar. 
And you know, while you you offline, you joking with me, man. He he swaggy with it. I mean, he keep a tight hat, keep some J's on. When first first time him, I'm meeting him, I would have never known he went to theological school, right? You know, I'm thinking I'm gonna see the the, the black shirt, the cloth around the neck, and he he's styling. Nah, nah, feel nah, raggedy. Nah. I feel raggedy. No, nah, no, nah. this, this, this is every time you see him. Uh, but you know, uh, most importantly, uh, you know, I like to call him a friend. Um, but yes, uh, you know, he is about to begin this process with his son. Uh, you know, I had opportunity to talk to he and his wife, you know, about, you know, some of the, you know, the decisions that they were going to make that we'll talk about. Uh, but I think, you know, it's good to, you know, get a perspective based upon, you know, what he's looking for in his son, but also his just professional and academic experience. And, you know, there are a lot of other great things he's doing. He's a he's a big deal. So I'm happy he took a couple minutes to be with us. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ellison. What's up, my brothers? It's good to be here. No, we're, we're we're excited because, like Tim said, you you bring a new perspective, um, and and again, old Atlanta. What what does that mean when Tim says that? Me being from New York and being an outsider, right? I was a visitor to Atlanta for eleven years when I lived there, and not even in the thick of it. I definitely wasn't there during the the nineties heyday. What do you uh, what do you consider to be old Atlanta? So some folks might think old Atlanta and immediately think Freaknik, but. We ain't gonna go there on this uh, on this podcast. It's just children's but... programming. It's children's <laughs> programming. But um, when you speak of old Atlanta, you know my parents moved to uh, the city to participate in the civil rights movement, and my mother was an educator. Uh, and <clears throat> every Saturday for much of my childhood, I would be in SCLC Women, uh, one of you know uh, the organization that Dr. King and Reverend Larry and Ralph David Abernathy were so central in building, and of course, uh, Mrs. King. And so uh, I would be uh, filling envelopes or doing whatever I would need to to support my my mom and her efforts. My father was an accountant, uh, Brother Shereem, and what what he did was uh, he actually participated as an activist in the movement um, by keeping the books of some of the iconic civil rights leaders clean. And so um, I grew up arm's length of folks like uh, Andrew Young and, and Joseph Lowry eating at the kids' table while my dad did their taxes. And so when we speak of old Atlanta, um, we, we talk about going to a school with a Black principal and a, a Black assistant principal and all Black teachers and having a Black doctor and a Black dentist and, you know, going to a Black banker. Um, and, you know, there was a different approach uh, to what we consider to be a Black identity. Uh, and so my parents did not move beyond um, the, the perimeter uh, because they believed in supporting uh, folks within the Black community. And so and when I hear old Atlanta, I think of that. And uh, gentrification has... Um, remodeled old Atlanta into a new kind of Atlanta. We'll leave I, it at that. I, I, I thought it was just Jeezy that 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 flipped it. Him and Gucci Mang. Now I mean I, I old Atlanta, I think of Outcast, but you you took it back even further than that. So th thank you for giving me that brief history lesson. Yes, sir. So so Tim, um you know it's for you know when Tim uh when Tim told me that we were gonna meet, I always said yeah. to him, I was like, make sure you come prepared because again you're gonna show me this he, you know, his nonprofit and all things he's doing at Emory. So I said, Tim, you better come compare with, with the heat. So we're going to make sure we hit you with questions that you may have not have ever heard before. I received that. 
All right. All right. Tim, hit him. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, obviously uh, you, you're, you know, really connected with Atlanta, you know, you know, you're still here, you know, obviously left, you know, briefly, um, you know, and you work at Emory uh, in the school of theology. How does one end up working in the school of theology? Like, like, you know, what was your career path and what led you to that? And be, because I know this, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, what type of student were you in college, sir? Um, I was not, uh, one who would be slated as the most likely candidate to be a professor at Emory. Let's start there. And so, um, my friends, I, um, <clears throat> I was admitted into Emory, um, on what was called a Benjamin Elijah Mays scholarship. Right. Um, and to the good bros, was, to the good bros, I, you know, yeah, what I mean? and make sure yeah. we already put that in Morehouse, blah, blah, blah. Frat first. We, there we I, go. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Maze fan, so I'm I'm gonna leave it at that. We're not gonna do any of that Omega stuff. But uh, you know, he <clears throat> I, there were King scholars and Maze scholars, and I was the one Maze scholar. And uh, I I did pledge my freshman year, Brother Shireen, and um, and I was also a, a, a pre med uh, bio major, <laughs> and I got a D minus in chemistry that year. And when you add that on to me pledging uh, Kappa Alpha Psi, not an Omega, um, I finished the first year with a uh, 2.4 GPA. And uh, in order to maintain the Benjamin May scholarship, I needed a 3.2. So I started my Emory career on academic probation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had some really strong um, support network, uh, I had a really strong support network around me. And, you know, I ended up shifting my major to religion and sociology, I kind of found my path, um, really had a wonderful time at Emory and moved on to Princeton Seminary. And, you know, um, I was not anticipating going into teaching because I, I struggled, you know, um, my first few years um, in college, but I really found my niche. I wrote about young black men who feel unseen and unheard um, and how that feeling of being muted and invisible affects how they see the world, how they relate to people around them and, um, and how they think about their futures. And so um, that work uh, really shaped my life working in prisons in Newark and you know, counseling brothers uh, uh, on the Princeton campus and um, it just so happened that God has a sense of humor. And 10 years after graduating from Emory University, I returned to join the faculty. And so, um, you know, Tim knows this. This is my 15th year um, as a tenured professor at Emory and uh, learned a whole lot about the world and about myself. So um, I obviously you've, you've been here. You've done a lot of great things, but probably one of the things that you may be most well known for is fearless, fearless dialogues. So yeah. can you share with the audience who maybe don't know about fear, fearless dialogues, you know, how did it start and, and what is it and kind of the impact y'all, y'all have made by doing it? Yeah. And so thanks for that question, Tim. So, you know, <clears throat> in 2013, my first book uh, was released and it, the title of it is Cut Dead, but Still Alive. And it was from that research I did at Princeton about the young men who felt invisible and muted. And that book came out just weeks before the Zimmerman verdict. 
And so as a young black professor um, who wrote, who had written about young black men and whose subject and verb agreed, uh, Emory pushed me in front of cameras and, and microphones. And so I did, you know, several um, interviews about, you know, Trayvon Martin and, and, and uh, George Zimmerman. And I recognized this pattern. And so they would say, Greg, you have about 20 minutes, 20 seconds to share your thoughts on whatever given question we have. And then within five seconds, someone would interrupt me and start shouting at me. And I began thinking to myself, we're on national television or national radio. What are we modeling to a broader audience about how to have hard conversations about things that are, are really taboo? And so uh, this is pre-Black Lives Matter, and I just got fed up. And one day I was on our local NPR station, and this was right after the Zimmerman verdict. And I said, you know, some of you are going to walk or, or march to the Capitol with your Skittles and your hoodies and your iced teas. And if that's what you want to do, do that. That's the right thing to do to bring attention to this injustice. But if you want to have a hard conversation about how we can improve the lives of young Black folk in our community, come to Emory. And the crazy thing was, Tim, I didn't ask my dean before I made that, <laughs> that invitation. And so I immediately got on the phone with her after I got off the, the radio, but over 300 people showed up. And I did not anticipate that that invitation would evolve into a grassroots movement, which would become an organization. But we just hit our 10th year uh, we work with over 70,000 leaders worldwide. Um, some of our partners have been, you know, folks ranging from universities and colleges to, you know, uh, large church bodies to we have a partnership with the NBA. Um, we work with Shell Oil Company and Amazon. Um, one of our large partners is a large PR firm, Omnicom, and we help people have hard conversations about taboo subjects that they'd rather not talk about using these really immersive and interactive uh, modules that we call experiments. So we've been really fortunate uh, to do good work and uh, to raise awareness of how to have hard conversations in a country that is really so divided and polarized around a number of issues from racial trauma to, to political divi divisiveness. So um it gives me life in addition to my work at Emory. And we appreciate that. I'm, I'm going to say that in advance. You know, your commitment to having those hard conversations, calling people out when they need to be called out, um, you know, and, and, and not say, you know, I'm above you. I know more. But look, I've been in the trenches. My family raised me to be who I am today in terms of an advocate. Um, that's important work. And, you know, and Tim knows this, you know, one of the reasons I left Atlanta um, I was living in Gwinnett County to be the yep. one to kind of set, set the stage. And although Gwinnett was, you know, one of the few, I'm not going to politicize this too much, blue states, but in the 2016 election, I was like, I got to go. Yeah. Um, I, I, I realized that where I was living in a part of land I was living that um, it wasn't, I didn't align with my family value. So mm -hmm. uh, bottom line is that it is definitely going to be a charged 2024 um, sure. with, 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 with the political debate coming up, you know, all, all the, the election, how are you and Fearless Dialogues going to talk to young men, particularly young black men uh, who may be 18 and voting? And well, what is your intent to kind of help 
this this um this this new age or these younger uh, kids coming up understand the dynamics of politics and race, but also their responsibility to it. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> so central to our work are um, identifying fears that um, really stifle not only conversation but building community. And um, I think one way to um, navigate around some of those fears is to name them and to acknowledge uh, that these are some of the impediments to my growth. And so, you know, the, our research, everything we do is built on research, right? I'm a professor. And so we don't just go in and try and make people feel good. We want them to leave there thinking about something. We try and scratch the subconscious. So once they leave, they can see something and they cannot unsee it, right? And so if you're fearing the unknown, right? And that is destabilizing you from moving forward with, you know, uh, a sense of hope. How can we address that fear of the unknown? One of the major fears that we find in the academy um, that particularly young black students deal with is the fear of appearing ignorant. And appearing ignorant, the, that fear manifests itself. Either you talk a whole lot or you write long papers and don't ever come to the, the final point, <laughs> or you say nothing. And so what we teach young people to do, and corporate leaders for that matter, is how do we operate with an economy of words? How do we choose every word with great intention? You know, there's another fear that we talk about, the fear of plopping. And this affects a lot of Black students, but also, you know, uh, it happens around boardrooms. And I'm sure you all see it in the work that you do. Plopping is when you muster up your strength to share your most authentic truth, and then it hits the floor. And everybody around the table looks at it, and nobody says anything. And then they change the subject like you didn't say a single word. Right? It, am I on? I, I know I ain't the only one that's. <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, no. If y'all no. can see Tim, I, 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 so so I, I didn't know there was a name for it, but there, there have been numerous times you you say something and like people are talking, you like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm share my truth, and then it just lays there, and then boom, next subject like it wasn't nothing. So and did then, not know. And then Tim, somebody else around the table will say the same thing, and they'd be like, "That's brilliant," right? And so plopping, and this is what, we, when we teach young people, we, we teach them strategies of how to navigate around this, right? And so we work a lot with HBCU students who are going into the workforce, right? And so plopping is not solely about the words that are coming out of your mouth. It's do I value you enough to even listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth, right? And so those things fall to the floor because we don't see you as either, even worth listening to. And so we give young people to your question, my brother, tools um, to navigate not only the political landscape and voting, but how they might move in the world with greater confidence and, and, and hope. Important, important work, important words. And again, I, I think that I am, I sit on the periphery of all this. Um, not being, I guess, you know, Atlanta is known for being, you know, the, the black Mecca. What's the word y'all use? But like, it's really, you know, the place where black people feel seen or go make themselves feel seen in this world where I grew up in a much more diverse, 
New York City, at least they try to pretend like it's diverse and everybody's a multicultural melting pot. Um, but just to kind of see you kind of put your stake in the ground as this is who we are, this is, we're going to be as black as we want to be. I, I applaud it. I applaud it. Tim and I, um, you know, a few months ago, we're in Los Angeles. And again, there, there is a different sense of how people identify and, and um, erect themselves or kind of, kind of stand up for themselves in different parts of the country. Um, and Atlanta's always, you know, been a good, good starting block for that. Now I'm curious, how are you incorporating that into your children? Like not to say you, you know, your accountant father and your, your educated mother didn't tell you, well, you better go to theological school one day and follow in our footsteps <laughs> of capacity. I know they didn't do that, but what are they, what are you pouring into your kids that you think they're listening to um, as they kind of evolve into young adults? Well, first of all, my parents were not happy when I told them I was going to major in religion and sociology because my dad's an accountant. Mm, he's like, you're going to be poor. Like, we paying this money. How you going to pay your bills? Right, right. You're going to well, be I mean, poor, like, Mr. He, Reverend. He didn't say, bro, what you doing? But he was like, hey, man, what, what really is going on up there? Right. And so, um, but to, to what we seek to instill in our children is, um, you know, uh, we've made some very particular decisions about um, how they spend their time. Right. And so, uh, reading is essential, right? I'm a professor. My wife's an attorney. And so we're, we're you know, well-dressed nerds. Let's just put it that way. But um, their work ethic is, is vital in our household. And so it's, uh, some, you know, old folks used to say um, some stuff is taught and some stuff is caught. And so, you know, they, they catch that we don't play around when it comes to academic excellence. Um, and so the way that manifests itself is our children are very outspoken in their classes. Um, you know, um, <clears throat> a few uh, years ago, my daughter, who is now 14, uh, went to her teacher on the third week of school. And she said, I've been looking through this history textbook, and I tell you that it is quite insufficient. Um, it, it does not address the needs of, uh, of black people, nor does it voice the, the um, historical achievements of women. Um, so I think we should read some uh, additional text. <laughs> I mean, that I, I'm about to curse up in here, but that, that amen, made, amen, amen. That made me really proud. Um, my son, uh, who Tim knows, just transferred to another school. Hold on, Dr. Let's not gloss over that. So where was he in school? And, and what right. caused the desire for this transfer? And what okay, were some so, of the things that went into that? So um, I'm not going to give the name, but I'll give a description of the school. Uh, my son was in a very small Christian school. And when I say very small, there are, uh, there were 14 children in his grade. And so when I say small, it's really small. And in terms of the academic rigor, it, it was like my, my son was writing, I, I teach in a graduate school, one semester, uh, he was actually a first semester ninth grade student. I revised his paper 
um, and his paper, now this is a Christian school, is analyzing the way that geometry <laughs> um, does proofs with how theologians prove there is a God, right? So he's doing a comparative analysis of geometry and theology in ninth grade. And I grade graduate student papers. It was one of the five best papers I read that year, right? And so he's in a school that's being taught by people who have PhDs. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a small college, but it is so hyper-conservative. And when the pandemic hit, they doubled down on their conservatism, their inability to welcome voices and individuals who did not look like them, who looked more like me. And I, I told the, the leadership, you know, um, that my wife and I do not believe it is in our child's best interest to be in a school and to not have a single teacher that looks like him before he graduates. And so given the work that we do and the work that our parents and our ancestors have done, we cannot participate in it. And so we change schools. And um, I, I think the, the, the last thing, if I, I want to, to share about how this strength of character is manifesting itself in our children, um, Tim, he just did this presentation you know, join the Lucas. Yeah. You, you yeah. heard of the, the rapper join the Lucas. Yeah. Um, join the Lucas did this music video called I'm not a racist. Um, have, have you heard of, have you heard of join the Lucas Shereen? Yeah. So join the Lucas is this rapper and he did this, um, this, this crazy video. I invite y'all to take a look at it called I'm not racist. And it's a, a Trump supporter sitting across the table from this young black guy who's supposed to be in a gang. And they just throw these venomous stereotypes at each other. And it's, it's really harsh. And then after they share all of those you know, stereotypes, then they say, that's what I heard about you, but I really want to know more. And so this is my son's third or fourth week in this brand new school. And they have to analyze for his AP language class, a music video. And most of the kids are choosing Billie Eilish and, you know, you know, kind of pop stars. And he chooses this really hard video about racism. And in a predominantly white school, uh, and he stands up and he gives a disclaimer, this is going to be difficult. And then he teaches the class for about 15 minutes. And the teacher called me while I was at work and told me it was the best presentation she had heard in years. Um, and that the level of detail in his analysis allowed students who may have sided with Trump to begin to see his point of view. And so, you know, we, we push our children to not um, shy away from difficult conversations of subject matter and you know i think that's been one of the gifts uh that we've had and it's also come with a lot of challenge and in, in being in environments that don't necessarily support us so so it's funny you said that so you know we're going to really get into a little bit about you know where your son is in the college process in a second and allow you to pepper us with some questions but um tim 
he and I talk about this a lot. When, when we lived in Atlanta, my son went to Greater Atlanta Christian School. Yeah, know. yeah. Um, and again, I actually liked it. He liked it. I liked it. You know, when, when I was checking it out to visit as a prospective parent, they didn't have white Jesuses on the wall. Like they, mm-hmm. they, they actually, it, it, it's a pretty diverse place, to be honest with you. Like it's got a lot, a lot of black students. But the bottom line is when you say that your son went to a small Christian school and he was, you know, one of few people who looked like him, Tim asked me this question all the time. Why did you put your son in an environment where they nobody looked like him? And the, it, it goes back to the whole HBCU versus PWI conversation. Yeah. Why do we, and I'm going to include myself, my, still, my kids still go to private independent schools and I live in a predominantly white neighborhood, blah, blah, blah. But why do we, myself included, put our children in these situations where they're the only? So our situation is um, particular to the learning style of our children. And so um, our kids both started off in public schools um, and we walked them to school. And uh, we, we live off of the Beaufort Highway corridor. So there were people of all backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, Beaufort Highway is the most diverse area in the state of Georgia. And so, um, they, I felt they were very well prepared. They had a black principal, black assistant principal, black teachers. It was great. But one of the things that happened in the classroom is I, we teach our kids to ask questions and, you know, we believe in hard questions. <laughs> and so what Gregory would do is he would ask questions in class. And one day, and uh, I, I found out, and this was near the end of the school year and it burned me up, man. His teacher placed a jar with five marbles on his desk every day. And every time he asked a question, she pulled a marble out of his jar. And if he asked more than five, if he asked five questions, he could not ask another question for the entire day. Heart wrenching, man. You know, the inquiry is how we grow. And so, you know, when I talked to the teacher about it, she said his questions are so profound that if I answered everyone, I would not be able to stay on my curriculum. He needs to go to a different environment that is based on the Socratic method where he can have dialogue in class. And so we had to find an environment where he could think openly and freely and not be constrained by a lesson plan and that's why we moved um but when we moved you know i told them in the interview they said what do you want your son when he graduates four years from graduation what do you want him to be i said i want him to be a man with integrity and i want him to be in a school that fosters integrity and when i use the word integrity i'm thinking of the word integer right that he does not have to be a fraction of himself that he can show up fully as a young black thinking male. And the white folk around the table were just shuddering. <laughs> but, you know, this is who I see our children to be. You don't, you don't make yourself smaller or dim your light to make someone else feel brighter. No, you show up. Man, brother, you know, I, I, I see why people uh, pay high dollar to hear you talk all around the world and, and, and to, to navigate these spaces. Uh, you know, I've heard it several times, but I, I appreciate, you know, what you're sharing. And so uh, just a couple quick questions. I don't know this, but where did your wife go to college? 
So my wife went to Claremont McKenna, um, you know, really small liberal arts college in California. Um, she had a great academic experience there and really struggled socially. Um, really, really struggled socially there. And so she hung out with students at USC. Uh, she's from LA. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, uh, she went to Columbia Law School and uh, really thrived in that environment and went straight there into kind of law. And so, um, oh, and then, you know, um, I would say about seven or eight years ago, she went back to school and um, got an additional law degree from Georgetown. So, you know, our kids saw their mother working um, and going to school. And so, you know, that that kind of thing, it, it, it trickles. So so now let's let's just talk about this college process. So what yes, I sir. hear is um, Emory educated uh, Princeton School of Theology professor, Claremont McKenna, Columbia Law School. Um, your children attend independent Georgetown, school. Georgetown, Georgetown. Yes, Georgetown. Your your children attend independent school in Atlanta. As your son begins to think about schools, are historically black colleges a part of that equation, or are most of the schools y'all going to be considered, you know, other type of institutions? Yeah. So uh, last year, we um, actually started over Thanksgiving uh, a East Coast college tour, uh, and we visited some families and went to some schools, and so uh, we want to expose them to all of that. And so, uh, you know, we went by, um, we started in New York and went down to DC. So we, we went to my wife's alma mater in Columbia. Uh, we went to my alma mater in Princeton. Uh, and then we, we spent some time on Howard's campus. Uh, and we also went to Georgetown. And so that was the start of the process. Um, again, you know, you know this because you went to school with my cousin. We have a lot of relatives that have graduated from the AUC. And so um, as a matter of fact, you know, we're going to start next week, actually next Sunday. Um, each once a semester, we'll have a college student dinner at our house because we have so many relatives that have children in the AUC. And so we're going to start inviting young people over for dinners on Sunday. Um, and so that they can begin to talk and experience um, what excellence looks like from, from different kinds of schools, but with young people who look like them. And so there will be students from the AUC and Emory and Georgia State. Um, so yes, HBCUs are on the table. I share that, you know, I, part of the partnership with the NBA is, is working with HBCU students. And so um, I, I believe in the merits of academic excellence that come out of HBCU. So yes, they will be on the table. Fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, that was it explained well. And I think we're out of time. Not we've always been out of time, but I think, you know, our book um, really asked the hard questions um, of families of why are you considering HBCUs and HBCUs only, or why are you, you know, considering PWIs and PWIs only? And yes, overwhelmingly, the most of the people try to do both or consider both, but it's still a very 
most families, and Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, that are we'll consider that we're looking at PWIs will only consider Morehouse, Howard, Spellman, maybe Fam, uh, you know, A and T, and not the Prairie Views, Gramblings, Tuskegees, and Fisks. Um, and again, it, again, it, it, it's those are historically black colleges in which they have history and legacy, and and, and people have been going to them for generations. We met a, a fourth generation Tuskegee graduate, you know, out in mm -hmm. Los Angeles, go figure. Mm -hmm. It's from Atlanta, mm -hmm. but, but in, in LA. Um, so again, you honor the, the, the significance and the power of HBCUs. And um, I would tend to think what HBCU to your knowledge has the great, has the best theological program, not to say that your son's going to go in that direction, but which program has the best theology program to your knowledge? Well, I mean, like if we're thinking historically, it would be Howard. Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, Tim is very familiar with, um, you know, the, well, I guess you ought to also include Morehouse's film. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but, but, but beyond what we call the black Ivies, right. We call them Morehouse, Spellman, Howard, Hampton, uh, fam and A&T may be on the periphery, you know, people who are listening to this podcast don't come for me, but you know, what other ones would be of that Theology, theology hierarchy that you would um, respect tremendously? Well, I mean, like the, the, the reason why I said Howard initially is because Howard has a theology school, right? Um, um, gosh, Lee, I'm, I'm blanking on the school in uh, Alabama, Hood. Hood has a seminary, right? And, you know, ITC, which is connected to the AUC, uh, has a seminary. And so, of course, there are theological minds and um, people who do deep thinking that come out of all of these schools. Um, you know, I have some good friends who taught at Claflin. Um, but it, 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 my son is also very clear that he's in the, into the sciences, even though he's a very good writer uh, and a great theologian. Uh, <laughs> but he's, he's trying to stay away from that. And so, um, you know, it's it's. I think there 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 are merits to each of these institutions, and you know, when you look at the alums from them, you know, you you can see. I mean, I think of Mary McLeod Bethune and Bethune Cookman. You know, without Mary McLeod Bethune and her tutelage, Howard Thurman, who trained Martin Luther King, would not be there. Right. Uh, he grew up in Mary McLeod Bethune's backyard as she was really launching Bethune Cookman College. And so um, th this history is so vital to the, the excellence within our communal story. So we want to be respectful of your time. So as you think about, you know, your family and y'all are about to begin navigate this college uh, search process, uh, what would you say are, is your biggest fear? Um, well, I, I wouldn't call it a fear, but it is a concern, right? I'm, I'm, I'm really curious how you two as experts in this field would approach um, the landscape after the, the Supreme Court decision. And, um, you know, what, what, what does that mean for uh, families of color? And um, I'm sure I've, I've been reading literature and, you know, I'm a part of the Emory Network, uh, thinking about how admissions committees are trying to figure out ways to write questions and read between the lines. But, um, you know, what does that mean for families of color? And, you know, I'm certain my son is going to 
do something that has blackness in it. But I'm I'm curious, how does that um, either elevate or diminish an application? Never diminish, right? He, he's going to, he, as you raise him to be, he's going to assert himself to be and say what he needs to say to represent himself the way he wants to be represented. I think the, the the Supreme Court decision is tricky. The bottom line is that we don't know yet, but it also takes, it's only a small subset of schools that are, you know, uh, historically very low admit rates between five and 20 that by law need to not use race as part of the evaluation process. They can use it in the recruitment process, they can use it in the yield process, but by law, they cannot be aware of someone's race unless your son or somebody else says, I'm black. By the way, did you know I'm black? And you know, I live in Atlanta. My dad is, does this and he's black too. So how they, you know, how students cleverly inject that into their applications will primarily be through their essays. I do think schools are going to have to be much more savvy on how they create the diversity that that they want, if they want. There are some universities who are like, yay, we don't have to have any more Black people on campus. Uh, but the schools that I'm sure your son will be looking at, and your daughter as well, will be places that um, want Black people to be who they are. So with that in mind, I'm very, very confident that places that he's supposed to be at or <coughs> supposed to be looking at, um, I would not allow that to be a, a major concern as much as you have the awareness to know that he needs to um, be who he is and understand that there's several places that want that person exactly, but just by law, they can't, he can't check a box that kind of gives them confirmation that he's a good, you know, part of their diversity initiative, I should say. And and, and Greg, I, I would say for, for you in particular, you know, kind of, you know, learning more about, you know, where your wife went. I mean, I think it's going to be important that, you know, your son interject who he is in some type of way, because, you know, if, if when my parent, excuse me, when not my children go to school, they're going to say, oh, his dad went to Morehouse. We can draw some assumptions. Looking mm. at your application, you went to Emory, you went to Emory, you went to, went out to Princeton, your wife went to, you know, uh, Claremont McKenna, and then, you know, she went on to Columbia, last name Ellison, you know, goes to insert school in Atlanta. Unless he inserts who he is, there could be assumption completely different than who he is. And so I think it's important in his writing and in the story that he tells that he really, you know, presents himself however he's most comfortable. Do I, can I ask a few more questions? You You can, you can. I know, I know our time is so even no, if, no, hit me, hit me. Even if we don't get it recorded, I got questions. <laughs> <laughs> be, be, be the parent uh, that you are. Be the parent that you are. So, um, you know, one of the things I find in students asking me to write recommendations for them, right? I, I often ask the students um, when they're inviting others to to write on their behalf to say, "Will you write a strong recommendation for me?" Right. Um, given the fact that you all evaluate, you know, those recommendations, I I'm curious what what stands out for you in a recommendation letter um, and also what stands out for you in an essay? Um, because I, I know you have to read hundreds of them in, in each cycle. And so there are a handful that you will remember both in the recommendation and the essay. What are those components that are memorable? 
So, so I'll take the recommendation. I, th I think the thing that stands out is, uh, you know, how that teacher counselor is presenting this student's intellectual horsepower, their mm. curiosity, uh, how they engage in the classroom, you know, kind of the level of thinking that they're uh, engaging in, in, in contrast to their peers. And so when, you know, you read a letter recommendation and, and you know, you, there's very strong language about, you know, the student's critical thinking skills, the student, you know, ability to analyze data, you know, their, you know, uh, art, their grasp of the English language and being able to articulate their thoughts. When you see those type of things, mm -hmm. it, it, it operates at a different level than this is just somebody who's smart. It's somebody who's really seeing the world in a different way at a higher level than their peers. And when you see that, and it's, it, you know, and when teachers feel that in the classroom, it comes across in papers. Like, you know, they, I've seen uh, lots of letters recommendation where they're just filling paper, uh, but, you know, really kind of speaking to their intellectual horsepower and the, the, the curiosity and ability they have really kind of makes uh, Rex stand out. And I'll address the essay part. Um, you know, I think it's important that students draw the reader in, you know, Tim and others who are reading applications are reading hundreds, thousands, you know, of essays and applications, and they don't have time to dissect every little nook and cranny. What they want to do is you got to hit me over the head with something interesting in the opening lines um, and then make help me to want to read more. So I think like a snowflake, no two kids are alike. And what kids have to remember is that if they write about things that are typical, and there's plenty of resources that'll, that'll explain what that exactly means, that's not to their advantage. They must be unique. They must document, um, Not too many kids try to create essays, document your lived experiences in a, yes, sophisticated way that's creative and clever, but don't try to abstractly talk about something that's gonna make somebody think, what are you talking about? I, I don't have time. So I really think it's important that your son, as he goes through the process, thinks about think about what makes him unique. His mom's from California, his dad's from Atlanta, um, a, 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 an attorney and a and a and a, and a professor. Um, he has a little sister. He's from, from Atlanta. He's third generation. I'm, I'm assuming his name is Greg the Third, right? Um, what does history mean to him, and what did he feel like his responsibilities are as a conscientious world citizen, given his background? Mm -hmm. So. If he can document some of the specific examples, um, giving anecdotes to, to share who he is in an authentic way, this is a 650 words, it's not an autobiography, but he has had a moment or two in his life where something has been revealed to him that he needs to share in his essay. So um, I really encourage families, parents, honestly, to help kids to brainstorm essays so that um, kids aren't spinning their wheels on their, by themselves. You know your kids better than they do. But more importantly, remind them of how different they are. How, remind them of how special they are. Remind them of the, the lived experiences that they've had, that their friends and their classmates haven't had. So that I would start the brainstorming with that. And then they need to put their fingers to the keyboard. And again, I think even AI has a role in this much longer conversation. But I yeah. think sometimes kids can get their ideas out, um, out of their head into an AI document, see it, and then be able to weave who they are into it. So um, given what I'm learning about you and Claremont McKenna, I went to Wesleyan University. I've been to Claremont McKenna, Pomona, mm -hmm. Scripps, Pitts, or all them schools. Yeah. Your, 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 your son has been raised in a environment where, yes, inquiry is the best way to learn, but where he recognized that his he's different. 
you know, and, and hopefully he's that's something that he's celebrating and, and can bring to um, his writing. Hey, Greg, uh, we're going to get you out of here on, on this one. Um, what would you tell your 18 year old self who was applying to college? Don't believe the narrative. That. You can't be the best. Yeah. Yeah, don't believe that narrative. I mean, there, there so many of my colleagues, you know, because I was at a PWI, you know, you're smart enough to get in, but they, you know, something tells us once we're there that we're not, we're not the top of the class. And I just had the benefit around being around some really, really sharp black folk that said, hey, I don't care. <laughs> you know, we, we came in with what we got and we're going to take it to another level by the time we get here. And I had some doubts and as an 18 year old, but by the time I walked out, I walked out with my head up. Um, and so I had to get, get to a point where I, I diminished that narrative and, and believed fully that I could be the best that I could be in that environment and be at home there. No, that, 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 that's special. That's important. Again, that's part of the growth process of the tender ages of 18 to 22, right? We, mm -hmm. we, we start at 22 confused and kind of not sure who we are, what our identity is. And hopefully, hopefully by yeah. 22, you're a little bit more secure in yourself and recognize what you believe in. So, uh, Dr. Ellison, I cannot thank you enough again. Like I said, Tim has been saying great things about you for months. Um, I know we will connect again at a later date because, um, of the synergy that we have here and the hopefully the conversations we can have about your son and the process as you go. So uh, like Tim said, we appreciate your time, your expertise, your knowledge, your efforts with fearless dialogues. And uh, we wish you the best of luck. Yeah. I appreciate you, my brothers. And thank you for this work uh, that you all are sharing with so many. Uh, you're, you're breaking barriers for us. And I, I'm grateful for it. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Tim, my dude, what uh, what do you want to say to the good people as we take off and after another classic episode of uh, of application to admission? I mean, first, I just want to thank uh, Dr. Ellison, you know, for taking the time to be here. Uh, you know, I encourage everybody to go to Fearless Dialogues, see the work he's doing, um, you know, because I think he's been making an impact around the world for a long time. And so it was just an honor uh, to have him on here to, you know, and him to just be transparent about, you know, his experience with his children and what he and his wife are, are trying to do to put them in the best place. Uh, but as far as this, continue subscribe, support, you know what I'm saying? Shereen, there's a book, man. What's the name of the book? I, I forgot. You shouldn't forget. You wrote it. Um, the Black <laughs> Family's Guide to College Admissions, um, a conversation about education, parenting, and race. We are going to give you guys big news by the time you uh, hear this episode. If it's not out in the world, it will be soon. So we got a lot of great things coming up in 2024. So for those of you who've been behind us all the way, we cannot thank you enough. For those of you who are just jumping on the bandwagon, you should have been here a long time ago, but thanks for joining us now and let's do it together. All right. All right, hey. Tim. I'm a, what? What'd you guys say? You got something else to say? No, I was about to say we out. Oh, then say it. We out. Lady out. <laughs> <laughs>